0: or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Consistent throughout the history of the church and Christianity has been this struggle, kind of this attack uh, by something we call fake news. Now... I'm not going to say that historically that's what they called it. It's not like you can read the church fathers like Polycarp and Augustine are writing and they're saying the church in Hippo is really under attack by fake news or that Paul in his letters talks about fake news, but they talk about false teachings that have crept into the church, whether from outside or within the church, whether people are struggling with that on their own. And Actually, a lot of the New Testament is just built around warning Christians to stand on guard against false teachings. Not that we can figure it all out, but there's a lot of truth that we can hold on to. Um, before service this morning, we have pre-service prayer for like our welcome teams and musicians, and um, Mark was leading it, and he was uh, he was just talking about how Jesus claims to be truth, and he says that the truth will set you free. And that's really kind of the heartbeat of these four weeks where we're talking about fake news, is not to be able to point our finger and say we're smarter and we know that that isn't true, but it's to say that in Jesus, we can not only find truth, but experience freedom in that truth, that the closer we come to Jesus, the more we know truth. Now, we're not all going to figure out everything there is to know about God. No one's going to arrive at a point where they've got the perfect theology and everyone else who disagrees with them is wrong. Um, I mean, unless it's me. If you disagree with me, then you're wrong. But other than that, you know, none of us can arrive there, right? But there is a lot of truth that we can know. And as we think in as a church, as we engage with God, we experience that truth and we get to uh, have the experience of experiencing freedom. I said the word experience a lot uh, in in the truth that we find when we draw closer to Jesus. As I've been thinking about this series, I thought about uh, this letter in the New Testament um, called Jude. And if you haven't read it uh, before, it's a really short one, really easy read. You could read it boom, Uh, no problem. Uh, When you go home today, it's only one chapter long. But I'll get you guys to flip to it if you've got a Bible or a device. Um, If you don't know where it is, it's the second last book of the Bible right before Revelation. And this is a letter. It's just kind of a general letter. Uh, It's not written to a specific church, but it's written to followers of Jesus. So it's a very, uh, it's an even easier verse for us to take into our context, or book for us to take into our context since it's less specific. And he opens up with the normal opening. He says, Jude... A servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, big name drop, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. So he's saying, this is a letter for people who have found uh, their lives in Jesus Christ, who are followers of Jesus Christ. I want to offer mercy and peace to you. And then he's going to move into what we call the paranesis of a letter. What that means is kind of the instructional part, what he's writing to them about how they should live. And he says, dear friends... Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. So he opens his letter. It's a very short one. He doesn't have a lot of words. He opens it and says, you know, I was just going to write to you about the salvation, the deliverance, the freedom that we found in Jesus Christ. He's like, but what I really want to write to you guys about is the necessity for us as followers of Jesus, as Christians, to contend for the faith that was entrusted to us. So what he's saying is Jesus came to earth and Jesus started this movement called the church. He started this movement called Christianity and he didn't just say, well, you know, here's the faith and all kind of micromanage it. He hands it to us and says, I entrust you guys to, to like be the incarnation of like the, the realization of this faith on earth. I trust you guys to carry this. And Jude says, we need to contend for that faith. We hear the word contend, maybe that sounds like kind of an aggressive word. Maybe you get the picture of like, You know, you've probably seen on the internet, like, the bullhorn Christians in the southern states with the really offensive signs. And that is, rest assured, that is not the direction we're headed as FBC um, ever. Um, But when I think about it, you know, I wonder, like, how do I contend for the faith? How do I contend for truth in my life? Am I actually passionately pursuing truth, studying scripture, trying to understand its meaning so that the fake news, so that the false, so that the lies that are in this world are dispelled because there are a lot of lies in this world they come from outside the church they come from within the church they come from within our own deceitful hearts and minds sometimes we tell ourselves things ourselves things that aren't true and we need to be on guard this idea of contending for the faith to me is a very proactive thing It's our opportunity to lean into who Jesus is, the embodiment of truth, to know him, to study scripture, to read it diligently. This isn't just a book to like go and like check off your chapter. Like I read my chapter a day. Well, if it was Jude, then like whole book in a day, like amazing. But, uh, you know, it's not just like, oh, I did this. But lean in. What does this mean? Slow down a little bit and, and understand it and personalize it and actually live that truth out. And as you do, you'll find that fake news has less place in your life. Uh, Today's fake news, you've probably heard it before, but we're serving up this morning. It says, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. And I'm not here to like step on anyone's toes. (laughs) Like you might be here and you might have said this statement to someone out in the lobby before service. And, uh, you know, I appreciate your intentions. And we're not here to be like, oh, like, like this is, these types of statements are things that I've said before in my life. But as I grow closer to God and study scripture more, I realize there's actually a greater truth than this. This is kind of a feel-good statement, kind of like sounds nice, um, kind of you know a self-help kind of statement, but what I want to do this morning is I want to unpack a little bit about how I don't think this, well, this statement isn't found in Scripture and how I think it really doesn't line up with Scripture, and there's actually a way better truth in Scripture that we can find that I think is a lot more helpful than a statement like this. Um, One thing that would make me really happy, this is my last week preaching in this series, kind of in the spirit of this series, I would love it. Um, We did this in the 920 service, so, like, I'll be comparing you guys, so, and completely judging you, so uh, just listen up, but um, I'm gonna read this again, and I'd love for you to just harness your inner Donald Trump, and turn to your neighbor right after I say it, and your best Donald Trump voice just say, wrong, okay? So, um, and this isn't like, you've been to a concert, and they say, how y'all doing tonight, and then they, like, you you cheer, and then it wasn't loud enough, so they, like, they're like, no, I said, we're not doing that, one shot. And you either get to be my favorite service or my least favorite service, okay? So I'm going to read it. Donald Trump, it will just make me so happy. So thank you you in advance, okay. God doesn't give you more than you can handle. That was good, that was good. Um, I won't tell you if you're my least favorite or favorite until after, just kidding. That was very good, very presidential. Um, So the statement, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. People have said it throughout time. You've probably heard it, maybe someone said it to you. Um, just don't really think it's quite the most helpful statement. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to unpack it a little bit. It, it's a statement that oftentimes, if people say it, there's this one verse in the New Testament that they'll use to support it, which we're, we will unpack that verse a little bit later to understand how it doesn't really support it very well. But what I want to do, I love narratives in Scripture. If you're here two weeks ago, I was unpacking the narrative of Gideon. Um, this morning, we're going to walk through the narrative of Jonah a bit. I, I just I don't get to talk about like some of these Old Testament narratives as much up here, so I'm really pumped to do this. Uh, We're going to unpack that narrative a little bit, um, read a bit, kind of paraphrase a bit, work through it, and see um, what that maybe has to show us uh, about this fake news. And and my real goal this morning in this is that our view of ourselves would decrease so that our view of God could increase. I so often think that these fake news statements uh, elevate us and then they bring God down a little closer to our level. Um, I, I'm not like a, you know, sadistic, and I, I think that or self-deprecating, and I think we need to like beat ourselves up. But I think the more like humble, accurate, kind of finite picture we have of ourselves, and we understand that we are not so great. It gives us more opportunity to step back and worship God in his magnificence and in his greatness and understand the, the hugeness and the reality of who he is and who this life is and how we can best respond to that. So if you'd like, you can flip to, uh, if you've got a Bible or a device or whatever, you can flip to the book of Jonah. Um, if you're looking for that, it's uh, right after, it's kind of in no man's land in the middle. Uh, if, it's right after the book of Obadiah, but if you don't know where Jonah is, you certainly don't know where Obadiah is. Um, just do what i do just kind of like recklessly flip through the middle hoping you see it and if you go too far just look at the person beside you (laughs) whoops i missed it like i totally know where it is okay um so then they they won't judge you anyways before we hop into uh, the text why don't you guys pray with me god you are so amazing and we thank you that you are truth please help us as a church community experience your truth help us be diligent in understanding truth So that fake news, that lies, that false teachings will not creep into our hearts and into our lives and into our church community. But so that we can, in a very healthy and proactive way, contend for the faith that you entrusted into our hands. You are an amazing God and we thank you that we get to be here this morning. Amen. So Jonah's what's called a prophet. If you don't know what that is, um, a prophet is basically someone that God gives a message to, to take to a specific people, and it's generally a message of warning. So, you know, he's saying, hey, he goes to a prophet, and God says, hey, I need you to go talk to this person and take this warning. So they're kind of like a preacher. It's just they're going to a very specific people with a very specific message. It's not like, oh, I'm just going to preach all year, kind of wherever I am. They're, they're saying, you're going here on this, God's saying, you're going here on this mission. Usually, uh, these prophecies in the Old Testament are to the nation of Judah, sometimes the nation of Israel, and then sometimes to the other nations. And they are generally not like the most like happy go-lucky kind of messages. They're usually a message of like warning and judgment. they saying, if you don't change your ways, if you continue on this path, there are going to be grave consequences. And so the prophet will go, and they'll warn them in the hopes that people will take the warning, heed the warning, and they'll say, okay, I need to turn back to God and, and live for God. So they go to a sinful people who are struggling, and they say, you got to change your way. So it's in my mind, it's kind of like a cop. Like, so, uh, the, you know, when they give you a warning, and they're like, hey, you need to stop doing this thing, otherwise you know. So, a little while ago, um, I pulled a U-turn, and uh, all of a sudden, the lights lit up behind me, and this cop pulls me over. I was actually concerned I cut him off, but he said, no, I just... He told me I wasn't allowed to do a U-turn there, but then that made me think there are places I'm allowed to do U-turns, which I thought I just couldn't do them anywhere. So, I I didn't ask him, but I wanted to be like, oh, where can I do U-turns? But um, apparently, there are places, so I'll have to... Maybe you can Google that and let me know. But um, so he's like, "No illegal U-turn." I was actually driving my friend's car, and I like forgot to bring my license. So the U-turn pretty quickly became not the topic of conversation because he's like, "I need your license." I'm like, "Yeah, like I don't have it." And so he went and like checked in his computer, came back. He said, "The good news is you do have a license." And I I don't know if he was trying to like prove that to me. I was like, "Yeah, no, like I know that. I just hope you know that." And so. He, he, he actually let me off with a warning, no ticket, but he's like, you know, like, you know, you have to have your license, you know, you gotta do this, otherwise, you know, electric chair, or I don't know what the consequences in, are in Canada for that, but whatever the consequences are, he's like, you gotta, you gotta do this, and so I was like, okay, thanks, so I drove home, and he kind of heeded the warning. Now, that's kind of my view of a prophet in a way, is that they go and they say, hey guys, like, you can't do this, and if you do, Uh, there are going to be consequences. And so we read this narrative of the prophet Jonah, and it starts out like this. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. So here it is. God comes and speaks to someone. Exciting, right? He comes and shows up to Jonah. He's like, hey, Jonah, I've got this mission for you, the Ninevites. I want you to go there and I want you to preach to them. This is exciting stuff. Like, Jonah's got this crazy mission. If you've ever sat around being like, what does God want me to do with my life? I mean, like, he just got hooked up. Like, God showed up. He knows what he's doing. He's got this mission. This is so exciting. So this is like, obviously, Jonah's going to respond in a really positive way and is just pumped. He's like, "All right, let's go. And the text continues. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. What a disappointment. <laughs> he went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. A couple weeks ago when we uh, worked through the story of Gideon, what I told you is that if you've grown up in the church and you've watched VeggieTales or heard a Sunday school, I don't have anything against VeggieTales. I didn't really grow up watching them, so I don't actually know what happens on them, but you, you get like the Sunday school version kind of a sterilized version of some of these Bible stories. Um, Generally, if I'm talking about them, I'm going to trample on that a little bit. And that's not to be a jerk or a bully, but I just want us to find out the truth about who these people really are. With Gideon, we exposed some stuff that was maybe less like heroic and positive about him. With Jonah, I I basically can't do anything but that because if you actually read the text, he's not actually that much of a hero. So might trample on your, like I said, I haven't seen the VeggieTales version. If it's for kids, I'm assuming it's Probably changed a little bit from the text. Probably going to trample on that impression a little bit. So Jonah gets this message from God and he just pieces out. It's like, I'm out. No way. Um, in scripture, there are these types of texts called prophetic call narratives. There's not a test later, you don't have to remember that, but prophetic call narratives is a story of God calling a prophet. He shows up and he says, You have this message, go to these people and do it. What's pretty consistent in these, one of like the kind of almost necessary components, is that the prophet says, oh, sure, absolutely, God. No, the prophet argues. So, you know, you've, maybe you've heard of different prophets in Scripture, you know, like Isaiah, Elijah, these guys. Oftentimes, the prophet argues when God commissions them. So if you read Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, God, I'm too young. I can't do it. I don't know if you've, like, checked my ID, but I'm not, like, the right age for this. Maybe my older brother or something. He didn't say that, but, um, you know, and then or God, the burning bush story with Moses, calls Moses the prophet, and Moses, what does he say? My voice is too weak, God. Like, I don't know if you, like, know much about me, God. And God's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I know. Um, and he's like, my voice is too weak. And they argue, God argues back, and he's like, no, you're going, and then they go on this mission. Jonah's prophetic call is really funny. He doesn't even respond. Like, it's just like God says it, and he just, like, awkwardly shrinks away. The picture I have is... Uh, you know, when I was young in school, there was like, there were the moments when the teacher was facing the students, and that's like when you sat there quietly, and then there were the moments when the teacher was facing the board, right? Um, And then that's when like the love notes were passed, and like eight paper airplanes, and spitballs and like huge party while the teacher's writing on the board, right? This is like my picture, is that the teacher looks at Jonah and says, hey, Jonah, you're going to Nineveh, and then turns to the board, and Jonah just like, Immediately gets up, walks out to the hallway, and, like, runs away. Teacher goes and looks in the hallway. Jonah's, no, Jonah's at the airport. The teacher said, Jonah, you're going to Toronto? And Jonah's, like, booking a flight to Vancouver. He's like, I am going as far away as I can. I'm getting out of here. Um, th- this is, like... It's just To me, this book is very comedic. It's hilarious. And Jonah just takes off like this. So I'm going to let you know what happens throughout the rest of the story. We're going to kind of work through it. We'll read chapter 2 together and we'll wrap it up. But basically, to me, what the book of Jonah is, is it's a story of someone being given more than they can handle. And I believe that that's true for everyone, is that we we are given more than we can handle in life. And it's not true that God won't give us more than we can handle. And I'll try to build a little bit more of a case for that later. One thing you need to understand is that Jonah's been called to a place called Nineveh. And maybe you know that word because you've, like, you know, heard the story before. Nineveh, what you need to know is that it is the capital city of a nation called Assyria. And again, there's not like a geography lesson later. But Assyria are like these brutal enemies of the nation Israel. These guys are like total savages. They are brutal. They torture people. They kill people. They are historically known as a really evil nation that just hurt and killed a lot of people. They brought a lot of destruction to this planet, particularly the nation of Israel. Shortly after this story happens, they're actually going to go in and exile the nation of Israel. They're going to kill tons of them, destroy their nation, take the people away, and Israel will never exist as a nation again, we know, for a couple thousand years. This is like, they're brutal. So Jonah would not only not want to go to his enemies, because he hates them, but he'd be scared to go. he shows up, he's like, hey guys, like, you know, I'm a Hebrew, and I want to tell you guys about Jesus, well, not Jesus yet, but I want to tell you guys about God, That would not go well. So Jonah's scared for his life. He hates the Ninevites. He doesn't want anything to do with them. So he takes off in the opposite direction. He gets on this boat and he's with this crew of sailors. And what we find out later in the story is that he actually told them, I'm on this boat because I'm running away from God. I'm running away from my God. And we find out that these sailors have all their own gods, these different false gods and all that. So Jonah hops down to the bottom of the boat, and he goes for a nap. He's tired. He's like, I'm going to sleep, running away from God. Rebellion against God is like hard work, so I've got to go take a nap. So he's in the bottom of the boat, and this crazy storm comes up. And for me, being in a boat in the middle of the sea with a crazy storm is a little unsettling of an idea. For these people, it would be an even more unsettling idea. And I've talked about this a bit before, but water was like a a very superstitious thing. Back in the day, there there were a lot of gods and sea monsters uh, kind of Kind of uh, what associated? That's the word. With uh, it's my job title. Okay, associated uh, with um, associated with the sea, and so people were scared of it. It was not a comfortable place. There's a storm. They're freaking out. The sailors are going nuts. They start worshiping their gods, calling out to their false gods, saying, "Hey, please stop it. Please make it stop." All of a sudden, they must have been like, "Yo, where's Jonah?" Like, what the heck? And the captain goes down and sees him sleeping in the bottom of the boat during a storm. Kind of reminds me of a story from the New Testament. Also kind of reminds me of like, you know, you hear like new dads and they're like, yeah, it's amazing. My kid sleeps like all through the night. They don't make a sound. And the wife's like, what? No, they don't. Are you kidding? How do you sleep through that? So captain goes, he's like, how are you sleeping through the storm? Wake up, Jonah. Brings him up. And he's like, we're all like worshiping our gods out here trying to make this happen. Like, you know, you got to be part of this. And so then they do this thing called casting lots. And it's uh, like an ancient practice that's kind of like rolling dice. So what people believed is that, you know, you could kind of do this dice rolling type thing. And your God would direct it and give you the info. So if it's like, you know, it's like magic eight balls. Like imagine if you just believe God lived inside that kind of thing. So this is what casting lots was. So they casted lots to figure out where's the problem. So they cast lots, they roll this dice, and it lands on Jonah. So they look at Jonah and they say, dude... Like, who are you? Tell us more about where you're from. Like, what's going on? So Jonah goes into speech. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I'm a Jew. And I worship the Lord God who created the sea and the dry land. He created it all. He's in control of all of it. So the sailors are like, you worship him? I thought you said you were running from him. And Jonah's like, I mean, I'm filling in some of the text here. But Jonah's like, yeah. Like, and so he tells them, they ask what they need to do. He tells them, you guys need to throw me into the sea. You need to just kill me. Which sounds kind of noble, but remember that Jonah's called to go to Nineveh. He doesn't say, turn the boat and head to Nineveh. He says, just kill me. I don't want to go to Nineveh. Like, forget that. Just throw me. I, you know, I imagine him saying, I'd just rather be dead, which we'll find out. He says a couple more times in the text, too. It's kind of a theme for him. Pretty, pretty depressing guy says, so throw me in the water. And these guys say, we can't do that. And especially if your God is real, we cannot, like, we're not going down there. So they, they're trying to row back. They're trying to throw luggage all, overboard on all that, and it's just not working. So eventually they pick up Jonah, and it says they're, like, so scared of God. They're repenting to God. So they're, like, holding Jonah while throwing him over the boat. They're like, sorry, 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 sorry. God, we're so sorry. We're so sorry. Don't, don't, don't get mad at us. They throw him into the water, and the storm completely stops as Jonah goes into the middle of the sea. And the interesting thing is these sailors actually then become saved. They become Christians. They like, well, it would seem so in the text. They start worshipping the true God as this act and seeing him calm the sea. So here's Jonah, and he's running away from this impossible call to ministry. This impossible mission that God's given him that threatens his life and is scary and he has to go to people he hates and despises. He's running away. He's in rebellion against God, and now he's thrown into the middle of the sea. And he's going to die there. But a lot of you guys know the story. This giant fish comes up. God sends this giant fish, and it swallows Jonah. And Jonah lives inside this fish for three days and three nights. Now he's in Hotel Fish, 2.5 stars on Yelp. The room service isn't so good. And so uh, this is an interesting narrative to me when I think about this statement, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. It's like, where does that fit into the narrative of Jonah? He's now currently hanging out, like, you know, he almost dies in a storm, almost dies by drowning. Now he's inside a fish. He must think, well, okay, I'm about to die. Three days inside this brutal, like, it's like dark and moist. I don't know what it's like inside there. I'm assuming it's really dank and damp and gross and like, what do you eat? Like, are you eating just what the fish is eating but just later? Um, And... What are you drinking? Like, I mean, this is crazy. The closest I can come to relating to that is, you know, in West Ed, that like whale with like the open mouth, you can go stand in it. That's like the closest. If you don't know, then your application activity today is to take your family to West Ed and go stand in the open mouth whale. But that's like the closest I can come to relating to that. So here's Jonah in way over his head, literally and figuratively. And chapter two shows a bit of a change of heart. And we'll read this whole chapter together. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, words of someone who has more than they can handle, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. And worst of all, seaweed was wrapped around my head. Gross. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. So here Jonas relents. He says, okay, God, I'll do it. I'll follow you. And the statement, salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation in the original language really just means deliverance. So what he's going to go do is preach to this evil nation that he hates that deliverance comes from God. And as a result of that, he's actually going to be delivered himself from the mouth of this giant sea monster. And we see this chapter conclude with this good news here in verse 10, and it says, because of Jonah's prayer, fortunately, God had not given Jonah any more than he could handle because he never gives us more than we can handle. So Jonah devised a plan to escape from the great fish and did so skillfully by his own strength. What great news, right? That is fake news, my friends. Verse 10 actually just says this, and the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. This is not a story of someone who God didn't give more, or did not keep from giving more than he could handle. Imagine Jonah nowadays walking into one of our churches and hearing a sermon from a stage of a church where the person opens the Bible and they teach, don't worry, God will never give you more than you can handle. God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Imagine Jonah listening to that sermon. would be like, well, you know, technically the fish thing was approximately a little bit more than I could handle. Out in the lobby and just hear some people talking. God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Uh, excuse me. Uh, but- so, like, you know, storm, sea, fish. Um, you know, I lived inside a fish for three days. Do you know what that's like? That's more than I could handle. I literally became fish puke. Like, I wasn't like in fish puke. I was the puke myself, you know? That is more than anyone can handle or was created to handle. That's kind of the. Those, those first two chapters of the focus, I'll wrap up the story just in case you don't know it to once you kind of know how it wraps up. But Jonah says, okay, I'll go to Nineveh. He goes to Nineveh, and he walks through this great city. It's this big city, the capital of this powerful nation is Syria. He walks through the city, and he just gives a short sermon and says, in 40 more days, Nineveh will be overthrown. This short sermon. He just repeats it. In Hebrew, it's only five words. It's a really short sermon. And this as a result of this short sermon... The, the whole city, like 120,000 people, and it says, and even their livestock, turned to God. Like, I mean, for all of the negative things I can say about Jonah, I desperately need him to come write my sermons. Five words, 120,000 people turn towards, like, I'm aiming for 33,000 people in our city, you know? 120, I, need him to, I need him to come help me out and show me how to craft a sermon like that. And God shows up and he offers mercy to this evil nation whom I will also say is experiencing way more than they can handle. they're a lost nation. I mean we can look at a nation like them they're brutal, they're killing people, they're torturing people, they're oppressing people. How lost can you be than to live like that? So entrenched in your sinfulness to be an evil nation like that? And they turn to God this whole city and they and they start worshiping God, everyone, the king, everyone. And Jonah, Most of us, you would think, oh, great, this is where he's very excited. His mission worked, And he leaves the city, and he's angry at God. He's like, God, this is why I didn't want to go, because I thought it might work. I know that you're full of compassion and mercy and love. You're slow to anger and that you care about the people of Nineveh, but I hate them. He's angry at God, and he lays down on this hillside, and he's boiling. It's so hot out, and he just says, I just want to die. So God sends this tree, it grows, and it provides shade for Jonah. And then Jonah's like, okay, I'll stay alive, I guess. And then God sends this worm. It's like a comedic story. God sends this worm, he eats the tree, the tree dies, and then Jonah's like, okay, back. I want to die again. So back there. And he continues to complain against God about the most important attributes of who God is. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm very thankful that God is a merciful, compassionate God, because that means he's dealt with me out of those attributes which I have needed. And he's mad and God concludes the story by speaking and Jonah doesn't get to speak after this and he just says, Jonah, as much as you care about that tree that provided shade, you have no idea how much I care about my children in Nineveh. I love my people. I see what they're going through. I see what they're walking through. I know it's more than they can handle, but I love them and I care about them and I want to be with my people." But the story of Gideon, I had to do a little bit of work to expose some of the negativity surrounding his character. Here's pretty easy. I can just read you the text and you can be like, oh, like, that's a really cranky dude who like, kind of hates some of the best attributes of God and rebels against him pretty regularly. Um, so, so that makes it very easy for me. I mean, I'm sure there's some nice things about Jonah, but uh, the text doesn't paint him in a very good picture. And you know, like I said, it's just so interesting to think about this fake news that we're talking about, this idea of God not giving you more than you can handle, when you think about this narrative of someone who's so lost and in over their head going to a people group who are so lost and in over their head. So we have to ask ourselves, well, where does this type of fake news come from? To say God doesn't give you more than you can handle. And I think there are a couple places it comes from. Like I said, there's a verse that people can connect to, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But I think one of the Main reasons we come up with these kinds of fake news statements that we're exploring over these four weeks is because when we read these biblical narratives, what we do is we take the, the the person like Jonah or Gideon or David or whoever it is, and we make them the hero of the story. And God's kind of a supporting role that shows up and like helps when needed. And then we identify with that person and we make ourselves the hero of the story. It's so easy for us to view ourselves as the hero of the narrative. But what happens in scripture is God is the hero of every narrative and he allows other characters to step into supporting roles. He's like, I'm the hero of this story where I saved Nineveh, but Jonah, I'm inviting you into my story. Gideon, you know, I, I want to liberate Israel, but I'm willing to invite you into my story. And nowadays, he's still continuing to write this narrative of the unfolding of his character and love, you know, throughout history. And he invites us in. He says, come be a part of it. But remember that I'm the hero of the story. And when we elevate ourselves to hero status, I think that's where it's easy to believe these fake news statements, where we think, well, I can handle so much, so God doesn't give me more than I can handle. Or maybe we start to think, God couldn't give me more than I can handle because I'm so great, I'm so tough. Or Doug's message last week, if you name it, your words are so powerful, your faith is so great, that if you name it, it comes into reality. Or even the idea of God helping those who help themselves, as we talked about in the first week. Like, if you're just so good that God will, like, show up as, like, a supporting role and be like, wow, great job, Ryan. You're killing it. Let me help out. I think that's one of the places these fake news statements comes from. I think another thing is that a lot of times we just don't know what else to say. So we just come up with these, like, regurgitated words that we've heard forever. You know, like, oh, I heard this somewhere. You know, someone's going through something tough, and we're like, oh, like, I can't fix it. So it's like, you know, God, well, God doesn't give you more than you can handle, or you know, next week we going to be talking about everything happens for a reason, you know, we say things like that because it's like, those are just some words we know that we can say. But but they don't actually make sense. In fact, the idea of God doesn't give you more than you can handle in some ways to me is an offensive statement. To to look at some of the challenges and struggles that I've gone through, gone, gone through in life, and to say, well, God won't give you more than you can handle is borderline offensive because I'm like, man, like, some of it's been really hard. You know, like it, it, it literally has been more than I can handle. Uh, like I said, there's this verse, maybe some of you know where it is, it's first Corinthians chapter ten, verse thirteen. And a lot of times people connect this idea to this verse. And what I wanna do is I wanna read this verse and I wanna unpack it a little bit, and then we'll conclude with some real news, and then we'll sing and then you can go home, and then I don't know what you do after that, so you can figure that out. But First 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it we read that one more time. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So I'll give you a little bit of context of what's happening in 1 Corinthians 10 because it's good to know the bigger context rather than to just hop on one verse. And I will say really quickly too, if people are ever teaching you a theological idea that only like, hinges on one verse in the Bible, be aware. I'm not saying it's always wrong, but be aware. Probably good theology comes from the whole of Scripture working together. Um, but what's going on in 1 Corinthians 10 is Paul's kind of recounting the his, history of the nation of Israel and their struggle with sinfulness. He says, even though God's good, they continue to turn away from him and choose their sinful ways and turn to other gods who weren't true gods but these false gods and, and they really struggled. And he's kind of recounting the sinful struggle and then he ends up in verse 13 and he talks about this idea of temptation being common to us and God being the one that liberates us from that. And I want to make a few observations about this verse in the ways that it doesn't connect to the fake news. Because like I said, a lot of times people connect it. I think the reason it's easy to connect it is like if you read it quickly and then you say the statement, it's like, oh, okay, sounds good. We're going to unpack it a little bit, slow down. We've already read it twice and it should make a little bit of sense. First of all, one thing I'll say in context and also looking at this verse. This verse is largely just about our spiritual struggle with sin. When people say God doesn't give you more than you can handle, they're usually talking about your external circumstances, like, oh, that situation, or that job thing, or that relationship thing is not more than you can handle. Already, they're taking this, if they're trying to apply this verse to that, they've ripped it out of its context, they've kind of backhanded Paul across the face, and and ripped it out of that, and made it mean something completely different. Paul's talking about our struggle with sinfulness and temptation, and a few observations. It says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. Why does Paul say that? He's he's not trying to be like, oh, you're not cool because you're not original in your sinfulness. Like, you know, you're just copying people who have done it before. He's saying we're all in this together. We are sinful, broken people. When When you're born, you have this struggle with sin, this proclivity, this bent to turn away from God and to rebel against him and to live for yourself and to make decisions that are not healthy for yourself, not healthy for others, that are selfish, that are wrong, and are so far removed from what God has for you which is, 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 is what's best for you. And, and this is our struggle, and we share with it through, like, through all of history. People have been struggling with this. It's not original. It's, it's, it's common because we face the same temptations. We're all going through this together. And rather than say, well, it's not more than we can handle, we should embrace and say, this is way more than we can handle. We, we, we can't do this on our own. You can't act your way out of it. In fact, he po- continues on. Next observation: is Paul says, "And God is faithful." This is the remedy to that problem, where God says, or "Paul says, God is faithful." He doesn't say, "But if you work hard enough, or if you're good enough, or if you go to church enough, or put enough money in the offering plate, maybe you give online." But you know those kinds of things. You know, it's not like that's going to deal with your sinfulness says the only remedy is that God is faithful and he extended mercy when Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for our sins and took the punishment and offered us the free gift of grace that we can't earn or act our way into, but that we can just freely accept, and that's the gospel message, is that that is all way more than we can handle because you're born into a sinful, broken state and you struggle with that sin and you just can't fix it on your own. It's approximately and exactly way more than you can handle. If God wasn't going to give you more than you can handle, you would have never been born. You wouldn't wouldn't live this life. It's too much for any of us. We can't solve it on our own. And that's why it's so important that we understand that it's by God's faithfulness that we're able to deal with our issues in in life, namely our sin issue, and that gives us the opportunity to experience eternal hope even though we're lost in our own sinfulness. continues on. He says, he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And he continues on, and he says, he'll also provide a way out so that you can endure it. I think this is where our theology often goes sideways. It's like, well, it says, you know, he won't give me more than I can bear or I'll be able to endure it. And we think that means, oh, uh, I'm simply just going to be able to, like, you know, deal with it and be, like, so good. Like, when you become a Christian, it's just like a free pass on temptation. Like, you know, you know when you, like, turn 25 and all of a sudden your insurance company gives you this, like, deduction on your insurance 24 years and younger people are like, no, I don't know about that, but it's great. But it's not like they mail you like some kind of like syringe that you inject yourself with and it's like now you're a better driver. Like this is better driver serum. We've been waiting till you're 25. Now your insurance rates can go down. You know, with God, it's not like, you know, it's, it's not like that. It's not like you, you just, you accept him and he's just like, okay, great. Like, no, I'm not going to let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. If that was true, then I'm doing this really wrong because I continue to struggle with temptation and sinfulness. I experience temptation and I give in and it's so frustrating and I don't want to do that. I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I know I should do and I continue to struggle with that. That is like the struggle that's common to us. So this verse isn't saying, oh, whatever it is, God won't give you more than you can handle. What it's saying is that God can handle it because it's more than what you can handle. When it talks about bearing it and enduring it, it's not talking about the moment-to-moment, day-to-day temptation that you face, like, oh, if you face that temptation, God let you face it because you can totally endure it saying as a God, if you've placed your life in his hands, if you've trusted him with your life, if you've been saved by him, if you've become a follower of him, if you've become a Christian, he will hold you, and because of his grace, because of his goodness, he will help you endure to the end. It's really just a statement of your salvation being secure, a statement of you being like secure in your hope that you have in who Jesus is. This isn't like, oh, I've become super Christian, and now like, you know, I'm not gonna struggle with temptation. <laughs> no, like, that's crazy, you're going to struggle with temptation. You might get stronger by the grace of God at saying no to some things and making good decisions, but we all make choices that we know aren't good. That's really what this verse is about, is is about our struggle with sinfulness. The reality is that life gives us way more than we can handle, whether it's our, our struggle with sinfulness our struggle with big decisions. A lot of you guys in the front here, at some point you're gonna graduate high school, hopefully, and uh, you know, then you have to make big decisions. They're overwhelming. What do I wanna do with my life? Where do I wanna work? Do I wanna to go to school? Those aren't easy decisions. One day, do I wanna get married? If it was me, can I get married? Is there someone willing to say yes? If you do that, should we have kids? How many? How do we pick our favorite one of them? I'm just kidding. That's the easy part. Um, (laughs) Big decisions. Things get tough. Do I stay with this person I married? My kids aren't acting the way I hoped they would. How do I treat them? It's overwhelming stuff. Relationships, jobs, money. Ah, It's kind of too much. The fact that we're all frail, dying people, that every breath we take is one breath closer to death. It's a hard reality for me to live with. Losing loved ones. I mean, if you show up to, like, one day if Talsy dies, and you show up to her funeral and you come up to me and say, don't worry, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. I'm going to give you more than you can handle. You know, I'm going (laughs) to punch you across the face and say, that is ridiculous because we elevate ourselves and our ability to deal with things, and we bring God down to our level. Like I said, my hope is that our posture this morning would say, I I, I can't, life's too big, sin is too big, our struggles are too big, but God is even bigger. The struggle is real, but God is even more real. And here's the real news I would leave you with this morning, is that our challenges, big and small, God's bigger than them all. And I hope that you'll lean into this real news while forgetting the fake news and understand that God's going to let you go through challenges. He's not there kind of saying, you know, is Ryan like strong enough and tough enough for this one? Okay, I'll let you know. It's just not like that. But he is our hope. He is our strength. He's the one that's bigger than all of it. And he's the one that we can have hope in when we face those struggles. The band's gonna come out. We're gonna sing together in a second. It's this song, it's called It Is Well. If you've been to a funeral before, you've probably heard this, like number one hit at funerals. Um, it's kind of an old school song. Old, but really good. And maybe you've heard the backstory of this song before, but this song was written by a dude in the 1800s who his, him and his wife had a son and four daughters. And one year, their son died of pneumonia, and then two years later, the mom and the four daughters were on a boat trip across the ocean, and they crashed, and the four daughters died. So in two years, they lost all five of their kids, their son and their four daughters. You know... I, I, I just imagine someone having this conversation with him or Jonah and just being like, oh, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. And I'm just being like, well, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. But one thing I love is the song that came out of that because this guy, he took the same boat ride that his family took, that the boat crashed on, and while on that journey, wrote this song called It Is Well. It is well, not because he's strong, but because God is bigger than the storms. He's bigger than the challenges. Whether they're small challenges or big challenges, God is bigger than all of it. This morning, I'm assuming that your struggle is not that you are currently trapped inside the belly of a giant fish. I'm assuming and hoping that your struggle is not that you've lost five children in the past two years. Um, I don't know what it is. Maybe you're here and you haven't trusted God with your struggle with sinfulness and you haven't embraced his free gift of love and forgiveness. If that's you, man, I'd love to invite you to give that to God this week and say, God, it's bigger than me, but you're bigger than that and I give it to you. Maybe you're going through some tough things in your relationships, your job, school, probably not school, it's summer. Um, Should have thought about that. Um, Your sermon prep, maybe that, that's what you're struggling with, I don't know. Whatever it is, I hope that this week you can lean into this truth that whatever your challenges are, God's bigger than it all and that you can put your hope and your trust in him.